Welcome to Six Degrees of Silvis, a podcast where we talk with artists, art collectors, advisors, museum directors, and curators to learn firsthand how the art world operates and how each participant uniquely addresses vital issues of our time. This week, John talks with the founder of Dunning and Partners and former auction house expert, Joe Dunning. We help arts organizations that are looking for innovative ways to fulfill their mission. And we help businesses that are looking for new pathways to growth. And we do this by conceiving and delivering um, tailor-made projects that, that, that support the arts and at the same time help businesses stand out, demonstrate their values, um, deliver on their mission, reach new audiences. So it really is about um, the mutual benefit, as you say. Here's the host of the show, John Silvis. I am your host, John Silvis. I'm an art advisor and a curator based in New York. Most of my research I share with my friends and my clients to focus on global contemporary art, usually with emerging and mid-career artists. With this podcast, I hope to pull back the curtain to uh, allow us to engage with some of the conversations that happen in the art world and encourage and push the art conversation forward. Please join me in welcoming these wonderful guests. Today, I am thrilled to talk to Joe Dunning, who is based in London and founded Dunning and Partners in 2020 after a 14 year career in the commercial arts sector working with Christie's and Sotheby's, both in London and New York. It's uh, great to have Joe here today. He is an amazing um, analyzer of data. He also specialized in strategy and business development, designing and leading numerous initiatives within the auction, private sales and advisory arms of the auction business. Uh, very importantly, he ran the Sotheby's Prize, which was an annual $250,000 award to facilitate museum exhibitions that explored overlooked or underrepresented areas in the art world. Um, he has established a lot of pioneering partnerships with museums around the world. He has served as an auctioneer and advisor for numerous nonprofits. Uh, particularly those focusing on arts and education. When I met him, he was uh, working with the New York Academy of Art and working on different auctions and partnerships with them. Uh, he's been a mentor with Creative Access, Free Arts New York City, and Urban Arts Partnership. He studied uh, modern languages at Oxford and got his MA in cultural creative industries from King's College London. So uh, as you can see, he's uh, an expert in his field and it's great to be able to talk with him today. So it's great to have you here today, Joe. Um, you've had an amazing um, career in the art world doing so many different things and um, you've really become an, an expert at, at dealing with large amounts of data and 
building a, a really great network within the art world. You're well respected by many. So thanks for taking the time and joining us today. Thanks, John. Thanks for those kind words. And, and thank you for having me on the Six Degrees of Silvis podcast. I'm really happy to be here. That's great. Yeah. And hopefully we can all travel again and, and meet soon. So uh, during the last year, uh, mid-2020, you founded a new company. You branched out on your own. It's called uh, Dunning & Partners. And you work with uh, museums and corporations to uh, create these art partnerships that are meaningful and um, purposely enhance the brand of hopefully both parties. So I'm curious to hear, you know, more about how that vision came to be and sort of what your your ideas are, how this is going to enrich the art world. Yeah, thanks. Well, you said it really well, actually, um, which is which is always great. It's always great to hear um, one's own ideas and, and, and mission reflected back because I guess it, yeah, because I guess it suggests that um, you're at least doing a decent enough job of getting the uh, getting the message across. But yeah, Dunning and Partners um, specializes in in supporting the arts through creative collaboration with business. So we help arts organizations that are looking for innovative ways to fulfill their mission. And we help businesses that are looking for new pathways to growth. And we do this by conceiving and delivering um, tailor-made projects that, that, that support the arts and at the same time help businesses stand out, demonstrate their values, um, deliver on their mission, reach new audiences. So it really is about um, the mutual benefit, as you say. Um, we were formed in, in, we launched in June of last year, June 2020, and it was really about helping to evolve the way that business supports the art. And like I say, the idea being that it's for mutual benefit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're, we're in a position at the moment, we're facing a, a global health crisis, a, a, a steep economic downturn, an intense and overdue focus on, on racial inequality. And throughout that period, we've seen artists of all disciplines channeling their abilities, their, their unique abilities to to identify injustice, to, to, to lend voice to the suffering that it causes and to visualize a world without it. I mean, these artists are using their platforms to, to drive change and to help people. And it's really important, it's always been important, but it's more important now that we find innovative ways of supporting those artists and the institutions that nurture them. And I believe, um, and this is why I formed Dunning & Partners, that the businesses who do will benefit as much as the artists and the organizations um, that they support. And that's really why we're here. Um, and, and, and I keep saying well, it, but in some ways corporations have really become important patrons of the arts, right? So we, we need these relationships and rather than just writing a check and saying, here, have some money, you're, you're, you're actually creating this engaging type of right relationship that I think long-term is much more fruitful than just handing out funds. Absolutely. Um, that's, that's exactly it. I mean, the, the fact is for all the, um, 
for all the cultural currency that artists have in, our, in, in, in these times in which we live, the arts as a whole, of course, we all know this, are, are struggling. You know, museums um, have been crippled by closure. Public funding, certainly in the UK, has been, has been steadily dropping over the last 10 years. There's an increasing scrutiny of other sources of income, private and corporate. And this is putting you know, huge pressure on these organisations and their ability to, to, to continue to do what, um, they, what they, they're there to do. But as you say, there is, I think, uh, an opportunity within that, an opportunity for obviously the arts organisations, but also for businesses. And that opportunity is really based around the fact that we know there is, there is statistical proof of this, that the arts attract a young and diverse audience. And this is the same audience who, according to economists, whose relative spending power will grow in the next 10 years as more and more wealth is transferred from, from one generation to another. It's also an audience who will spend more on brands that reflect their values and that support causes they care about, causes like, for example, racial justice, sustainability, um, climate change, diversity. And so for, for businesses who share those values um, and support those causes, the opportunity is there to reach a key audience, not just a key demographic, but a key psychographic. Mm-hmm. And, and by supporting the arts, in innovative ways, businesses can engage both existing and prospective customers um, on a level that is authentic and emotional um, and, and, and really forge that emotional connection with their, with their potential clients and their potential customers. Um, and that's really what it's all about with Dunning & Partners. It's about delivering those unique tailor-made um, projects that, that, that deliver benefit to the arts but also do so in a way that stands out and gets attention for the the corporate supporter and allows that corporate supporter to to reach and connect with their audience. Mm -hmm. Well, the the corporate world should be paying attention to this cultural shift, I would imagine, because not only the attendance numbers, but the investment in particularly visual art and museums has gone dramatically upwards in the last 10 years, right? So this is a viable market at this point. Um, I mean, looking at the art world as a, it's like own economy. I mean, it's it's an enormous um, part of of, uh, the cultural production, right? And and, um, I think, you know, I've been amazed to, to see how more relevant it has gotten in culture at large. Now, you were working at uh, Christie's and Sotheby's. So you've been able to kind of peek behind the curtain and, and see how the machineries and the sort of the, the power of those types of auction houses have and how they influence the art market. Uh, some, some people would say it's sort of a separate market from other parts of the art world, but um, how have your experiences there kind of uh, shaped how you think about business and then also just about this connection between, you know, financing and the arts? Well, it was really- I know that's a big question, but- <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it is a big question. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in this idea that everything that we do has an influence on, um, you know, where we end up. 
Um, I don't, I don't, I don't believe in in fate or anything like that. I think, I think we have this sort of tendency in life to um, to sort of look back and and, and string together a narrative um, out of all of these things that have happened to us. Um, but certainly, a lot of the things that happened to me at um, a lot of the experiences that I got at both Christie's and Sotheby's, I worked in 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 New York, well, London, then New York, then London, um, have have contributed to, um, to to where I am. And it was really out of my experience at Sotheby's most recently that the idea for for Dunning and Partners was born. Um, I was working at Sotheby's in New York. Uh, I moved there in. January of 2016 and throughout my time both in New York and with Sotheby's in London I was working across a number of different areas of the business. I was working both with the specialist side of the business and with the the non-specialist side. The the auction industry tends to call them, refer to them as support staff. Um, But I was working with with all sorts of people not just in in, in finance and marketing and IT, product development, all sorts of really really interesting facets of the business. And, and I was able in that time to, to use and develop different skills. And increasingly I found that I was putting a greater amount of focus um, on collaboration and on creating value by bringing different groups of people together. Now, the nature of a, a business such as Sotheby's and Christie's is um, to a large extent, adversarial in the sense that you are competing with one or two other people to win that particular consignment or you're uh, you're competing to 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 beat this auction record and and you know, set a new record for an artist and i did a lot of that uh, for a long time and enjoyed it and learned a lot and many of my friends and former colleagues still do that and that's the that, that's the thing that gets them out of bed every morning that's the sort of the lifeblood of, of, of what they do and I don't knock it for a second but for me I felt increasingly that I was I was better on the on, on the collaborative side um, and so I was trying to figure out how I might be able to do that full-time right what would a full-time job where I'm creating value by bringing different groups of people together look like um, and while I was at Sotheby's, one of the projects that I was working on really sort of served as a, as a template and an inspiration for what then became um, Dunning & Partners. I was lucky enough to, to work on the Sotheby's Prize, which was an annual award that Sotheby's gave out up to $250,000 every year to a museum for an upcoming exhibition that focused on an overlooked or underrepresented area of art history. So it was really about taking some of the profits that Sotheby's makes and all auction houses make from from essentially the function of the narrowing of the market, right? If you you imagine that um, what we see at auction is only really a very tiny subset of of, of all of the art that's produced and it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that if, if one work by this artist sells very well, then it's more likely that another work by that same artist will be consigned to auction. So mm-hmm. there's this kind of narrowing effect that the auction market creates. And what Sotheby's wanted to do with the prize was, was open that up, sort of reverse that, that, that process, um, divert some of the profits that it made from that process and, 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 and contribute towards broadening our view of, um, of the art. And so I was, I was 
incredibly lucky and incredibly privileged to um, to be able to work on that. I, I ran the entire project, which involved uh, recruiting and liaising with a jury made up of some of the, the biggest names in um, in the museum world, museum directors, museum curators. It meant liaising with museums themselves to get um, the applications in. And it meant um, also making sure that the very, very clear corporate goals that underpinned and justified the existence of the prize were, were um, known, were measured, and were um, used, I guess you can say. So that experience gave me an understanding of, 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 of the potential within museums and of the limitations within museums. So the potential in terms of all of these ideas that they've got for, for great exhibitions and great projects that would really benefit their audiences. But the limitations in, the term, in terms of the fact that the, the money to make those ideas real was, was, was very much lacking and hard to come by. Um, so I got that understanding and I also got this understanding of how to create and deliver value for Sotheby's because like I said, um, a for-profit company such as Sotheby's is only ever going to justify spending $250,000 if there's benefit for them. And the benefit was not just about the, the sort of the intangible reputational uptick of which there was a very, very noticeable um, and strong one, uh, but it was also about very particular corporate goals. And so part of my job was to, was to ensure, like I say, that those, those goals were, um, were, were measurable that they were being measured and that the, the benefits um, were, were clear for everybody to see. So that, like I say, became the, the template and the inspiration because it was all about doing something that was good and that was, was sort of first and foremost designed to bring benefit to the art world, mm -hmm. but that also in, in being unique, in standing out, um, in being effective was, was, was increasingly beneficial for uh, the, the funder. So it was really with that idea that I set out to, um, to form what has now become Dunning and Partners. And I think the other, the other aspect of, um, of, of your question that's important to sort of comment on is that my entire career has been in the commercial art world in those two um, auction houses and, and, and from that experience, I obviously you know, know the, the landscape of the art world, um, but I also, you know, I understand the, 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 the dynamics within the art world and what will resonate and what won't. And I, I, I spend a lot of my time talking to corporate supporters or prospective corporate supporters about that, using, using that knowledge that I have, um, helping them understand the dynamics, helping them understand what will resonate. Um, but because of, the, because of which part of the art world I come from, the commercial side, I also understand how corporations think. So um, I understand what they want to achieve, how they measure those achievements. And so I, I spend a lot of my time using that knowledge of the art world and experience in the corporate world to create, uh, to, that, to create that value and almost to act as a kind of a translator between these two worlds. Because I think mm. that the, the art world does a, a, a very good job of um, talking about itself it, it can do better in certain areas and we might talk about that later I don't know um, but it, it generally does a good job of, of, of talking about itself in certain ways but not necessarily in translating that value and that benefit into a language that, that the corporations talk 
Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of this this idea of being divided by a common language, and here I am sitting in the middle, trying at least to to translate for those two worlds. Yeah, I mean, how how do you think? So, bringing up the the fact that you think the art world could do better at representing themselves, do you have any further thoughts on that, or or any like suggestions? Yes, I think that for for me, the the big so the big flashpoint for me was last summer, towards the end of last summer, when there was uproar on Instagram within uh, the art world um, and elsewhere uh, on other social media channels, probably in person, probably over, over over Zoom links like this. When there was this, there was a report um, in the news of a survey that had found that artists were deemed by members of the public to be the least essential of non-essential workers. Oh yes, I, I did see that. Yeah. 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 And in, in, in the end, it turned out that it was, um, I, I looked into it and I actually wrote an article about it um, on my website. Um, I looked into it and it turned out that it was a, a, a massively flawed um, process. The, the it, it, artist was one of a number of, a relatively small number of um, um, jobs that was arbitrarily selected to, to, be, to be chosen as a non-essential. So there were all sorts of um, procedural flaws to the actual research um, and it was it was a very very small subset of people and it was I think it was in Singapore um, yeah. or, or, or somewhere but it, it you know it, it wasn't as a comprehensive a survey as everybody thought but I think I thought I found that to be less significant than the fact than than the way in which people responded to it. Sure. So the response of people in the art world was, well, that's self-evidently false. Mm -hmm. And that for me is a problem because that speaks to a sort of a, a complacency for those of us within um, within the art world. Stephen Pinker talks about what he calls the curse of knowledge. He mm -hmm. talks about this idea that everybody overestimates what um, what they know and sort of underestimates what somebody else knows. Mm -hmm. And so what we know from, from being lucky enough to, uh, or what we believe, I suppose, from being lucky enough to, to, to know artists and to, and to see the, the impact of their work is that artists are important, but mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody else is going to see that. And, and, and for me, that reaction to what, wasn't, you know, what was a flawed survey spoke volumes about the way in which the art world talks about itself. We don't do a very good job of explaining why we love it, of explaining what benefits we get from it, of explaining what benefits other people get. So I, I wrote an, an article um, on, my, on my website called Artists Are Essential, Here Is Why. And it was really, it was, it was delving into some of the, some of the themes that I, I mentioned at the top of our conversation about artists who are using their platform to drive change. And I think that we don't we don't do a very good job of pointing that out of pointing out that artists are members of our community they are gig workers they you know they are waiters in restaurants um, and they are struggling economically just like anybody else and i think that at the same time they're finding a way to to use their abilities to to to, to drive change and to uh, and to make a difference um, and so I think we need to we need to put more of an emphasis on that aspect of the art world, um, like and art advocacy, or yeah. yeah, 
and just and, and and just recognize that there are people for whom art isn't as important as it is for us, um, for whom it isn't the be all and end all, and we need to we need to recognize that I think with humility, but also with ambition because there are plenty of people who 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 could be given the benefits um, and co who could enjoy the benefits of um, the arts who don't currently benefit from them. And I think that we we, we shut them out in, in, in a number of ways. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I often give tours to different groups of people who, who may not be as versed in art. And I think even some of them are surprised that you can just walk into a gallery anywhere in the world and it's free, essentially. Mm -hmm. It's there to enjoy, to absorb. And um, I, I think some of it is, is just, a, a, you know, misconception of what's accessible and, and what's not. And, you know, and I think also artists' ideas, particularly ones that are edgy, they, they take time, for, uh, they take time to work themselves out into the culture or to start, you know, dialoguing with things that are happening in film or, or even in television. And, you know, I think it, it takes, uh, there's a little bit of a delay in between the production and then, you know, when we start seeing these ideas flourishing. Um, an exciting process. Yeah, I, th I think in that sense, we can, we can almost view artists as seers of the future in mm. a way. Um, I, th I, th I think of this when I, when I look back on on certain artists and please don't ask me to give an example because I'll, I'll probably not be able to think of one but you know there, there well, are... I think of I think of Warhol for instance as right. a perfect as a key example yeah his work I mean I, I was lucky enough to see just before lockdown um, it, in, in its first week the Warhol show at Tate Modern mm. which was really looking at Warhol through the lens of being an immigrant um, and being a Christian and being a gay man. And, and we, we, we know those three things about Warhol. That's not new information that is being uncovered about him um, through this exhibition, but the emphasis of, of you know, those three themes really felt resonant for, for, for the time that we were in. Obviously it was planned for a, in a, in a pre-COVID world. It yeah. opened just, just as um, the pandemic was sort of taking its grip, but, you can see that you know everyone quotes Warhol on that famous for 15 minutes and how he would have loved social media and he probably would have quit Instagram and come back on three or four times and if it had been around during his time or if he was around now um, and, and so there have been these these ways in which we think about Warhol as a predictor of the future but this exhibition at, um, at Tate Modern really for me just underlined how much currency his his art still has, and, and how it can how it can resonate now with the current times, as much as it resonated with the times of the sixties, the seventies, the eighties. Yeah, no, I mean it's one of those artists that when I you know do studio visits or critiques with younger artists, you know, so many of them are referencing back to at least one or two of his ideas, you know, you just see this kind of lineage happening. And so he's one of those people that I started realizing has had an enormous, enormous impact on, yeah, what we're seeing now. Well, I mean, reality TV, right? I mean, he did uh, the film Empire, right? Where he just filmed the top of the Empire State Building. I mean, these kind of 
really, really visionary, simple, straightforward, visionary works, you know, but it really changed how we thought about time and film. And mm. yeah, so it's very interesting. Um, you've also written an article recently about in Artnet News about uh, kind of the, if you want to call it like the entry level positions in the art world and kind of how people are treated and the dynamics of that. Um, obviously privilege plays into that as well. Um, how do we pay interns? Do we not pay them? Um, it's a very important topic because I often think about that when I'm uh, going around, you know, these big galleries, you know, $100 million buildings. And yet I know that the gallery attendants or even you know, the salespeople giving me a tour are, are, you know, probably struggling in some way. So um, can you talk a little bit about sort of your thoughts on that? And um, was a really, I think, a very profound article. Oh, thank you. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to. This is a, a, a sort of a cause that's that's close to my, my heart, I guess. Um, I, I read a report by the Sutton Trust, which is a, um, an organization here in the UK, it was published, I think, in 2018, and it found that in the UK, 86% of internships in the visual arts are unpaid and unadvertised. And in my own experience of working in the auction houses, it's not quite that bad. Um, interns are paid, and internships, by and large, are advertised. But the fact remains that pretty much any intern that I have ever worked with, the vast majority of whom are hardworking, intelligent, ambitious, who have gone on to, to, to build um, successful careers in the art world, they, they were all also able to survive for an extended period of time, six, 12 months, on a salary that, that barely covers the rent. Yeah. Because they're paid if they're paid they're paid at a very very low level so it's it's it's, it's self-evident right that that the only people who can access a, a, an unpaid or poorly paid unadvertised or not widely advertised opportunity are people who you know graduates that don't have crippling debt that um that that perhaps have parents who can support them financially and that maybe have um have connections within within the art world, and that's only a very very small subset of of the the, the graduate population, and it's it's inherently selective, and it, it effectively goes against uh, it. It keeps the 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 workforce um, very very the same, right? So it it it, it it's it's harming. Um, diversity and inclusion it, 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 it's it's you're creating a very homogenous workforce and um and, and this is obviously something that we've all been thinking about over the last few months and you know nobody's going to argue that 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 diversity isn't important right i think it was um bernardine evaristo the the booker prize winning um author of girl woman other who said recently that you know she pointed out as if it needed pointing out that the the moral argument for diversity was was won a long time ago, right? No one's no one's arguing um, the against the moral um, um, argument for for diversity, but it's still that's still not affecting change, right? We're still not seeing 
much change in the way that opportunity is is, is created for people. Um, and 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 the fact is, I pointed this out in my article. There's also a a, a growing business case, and this is, I think, what needs what needs um, emphasising more because this is what's going to actually drive. Uh, change, I think. There is mounting evidence that diversity and inclusion deliver profitability and innovation. Um, you know, there are, there are lots of reports out there. I can, I can point you to them if you're, if you're interested um, and if your listeners are interested. Um, and I think that the fact is that across auction houses, galleries, art fairs, um, there is a genuine desire to broaden access to opportunity. But in order to do that, there are certain structural issues that we need to address, and we need to do, address them collectively. So, you know, historically, low salaries make it possible for people from certain backgrounds to, to get a start. Um, opportunity can be can be hoarded unwittingly by, um, you know, uh, the example that I give in the article is, you know, for every for every person that takes you for a coffee and picks your brain, um, you know, if, let's let's imagine a friend of yours asks you to to meet their cousin for coffee. Um, and your cousin, their cousin goes for coffee with you, picks your brain, gets some advice. You know, I said in the article, for, for, for every person that does that, and I say yes to those people, by the way, because I respect the hustle. But for every person that, that picks your brain, there's somebody else who's equally um, able and equally deserving of an opportunity who's one step further behind now just because they don't know the right people. So, so you know, we, we, we hoard opportunity unwittingly and we, we place this, we create this premium on knowing the right people, and so in the in the article, I argue that we need to we need to remove those barriers, right? We need to create an industry that's that's more creative, more innovative, ultimately more profitable. Um, and what I'm planning to do, what I'm hoping to do, uh, and under the umbrella of Dunning and Partners, is is create a program, an internship program that will that will you know, take steps towards that goal. That will give people from underrepresented backgrounds. Um, opportunity to to experience a career that I believe can be very fulfilling and very rewarding. Yeah, so you're going to try to create some kind of facilitation platform uh, between art institutions and and interns that are qualified and and interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, when when I ran um, an academic program uh, for a while in New York, it was called NICAMS. You know that that was one of the most rewarding things that I did. Is I, I loved connecting the students with internship possibilities in the city, and I think a lot of those were really transformative. And um, yeah, and it's tricky because some of those were paid. In fact, some some were not, um, and certainly the ones that were in design or those kinds of fields where we're actually expected to be paid or the, the companies expected to pay them, whereas, you know, most galleries don't. And I, I've had that experience of young, young artists that I know they'll work in a gallery for six months and, you know, maybe get a coffee occasionally um, bought for them, but that's about it. Yeah. I mean, the, the so, and you know, you, you imagine living in New York, working in this, in this gallery where, you know, things are flying out of the door at a hundred thousand a pop, but then you're, you know, living in some, you know, rowdy apartment somewhere and, you know, it's, yeah, it's rough. Yeah. And th th there's only a certain amount of time that most people will put up with that before yeah. deciding to do something else, move to a different city or take up a different, a different role. And I think that that's the issue that, that 
the experience that somebody gets in a role like that, and, and you use the word transformative, and I think it's exactly the right word to use. It can be transformative in someone's career, but the the collective sort of assumption has been that the value of that is so high that mm. it eclipses money in the bank, right? So you're, you know, welcome, welcome to my company um, as an intern who's who's working for free. You're welcome. You know, that's kind of been the the, the attitude. Yeah. Um, and that's not, you know, that's not an attitude of one individual. It's a, it's a structural issue. I think it's a collective failure. Um, but I think that we, that, that's why I think we need to come together to, 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 to bring those barriers down. Well, the first point is really just talking about it and exposing it, right? And, and, and what was interesting, actually, in, in response to the article that I got was an, a number of friends who work in different industries, some of them in the creative industries and some in completely different industries, coming and saying to me, interesting, it's the same here. So this is not a problem that is unique to the art world. Um, and I think that that one of the sort of the elements of shock for the art world has been over the last year or so, that there has been this reckoning um, mm -hmm. where we have, we have realized to our shock in certain instances that perhaps we're not as you know, liberal and forward thinking as we as we thought we were, because there are these. You know, we 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 agree. Like I say, the moral case, we agree about you know, you know workplaces should be diverse. They should be inclusive. People should feel empowered. People should be rewarded. People should be motivated. Um, everyone should be treated fairly. There should be opportunity for. We all believe those things. And over the last, I think, six or or, or twelve months, we've had this reckoning where we we realise that actually we work in an industry that doesn't necessarily. Um, uphold sure. those, or actually uh, those values. values yeah they don't yeah so we all share them on an individual basis but we don't uh you know we we also sort of contribute to the the existence the continued existence of these barriers mm -hmm. well you know it, it's it's great to to hear you sort of point out these um kind of important dynamics in the art world and i i think you know five years from now um i think everything that you're doing is going to create a lot of positive change. So it's going to be exciting to watch that happen. Um, I mean, one thing that amazes me about you is that um, you also have a great capacity to um, kind of condense ideas and sort of summarize them very succinctly. So I, I think, um, you know, that's an incredible uh, kind of skill and gift you can offer in these kind of facilitating roles of sort of condensing everything down to the essentials. Um, and I also like what you said about collaboration because I've seen, I've seen you live that, you know, both in your kind of professional world and then how you interact with people. So I, I hope, uh, I hope you keep that up and keep collaborating. I think it's really, really important for, for the art world, but then also building these unique uh, partnerships. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in, in both of those things you mentioned, in a believer in data um, and a believer in collaboration. And I think the best, the best projects, the, be, the, the best results come from, I guess, the marriage of those things or the application of, of, of both of those things. I think collaboration is, 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 is really important because, and again, this kind of stands to reason, right? different people from different backgrounds with different mindsets will see different angles to a problem. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a, there's, there's a, a particular academic that talks about um, sort of cloning, you know, imagine if you could clone 
Imagine if you give like 10 people a test and you clone the number one person, the person who scored number one on that test. This, this academic points out that that you know that person will will not add anything by definition to the conversation because they they literally know exactly what the other person knows. Mm-hmm. Um, and so unless you're unless you're you know running a 100 meter race, you don't really want to um, clone the fastest person or the best person. You want someone with a different um, a different approach who can who can just solve the problem like that, right? Just yeah. see it from a completely different viewpoint and a completely different angle. Um, and so, yeah, collaboration for me is 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 huge and is a big part of what 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 Dunning and Partners is all about. We've mentioned that already. Um, but when it comes to data, I mean, I think I think data is 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 really important. And I think back to some of the conversations that you and I have had in the past about, um, let's say, auction data, right? And understand how how can you understand the results around a particular artist? And I think. Yeah. That that approach has informed my approach to data with Dunning and Partners, which is to say that the data gives us uh, a lens to look at the problem, but I don't think it answers the problem in and of itself. You know, when, when we're talking about understanding a particular artist's market, we 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 need to be able to we need to understand what what is happening from a from the point of view of the numbers, but also. We need to understand that we need to have an appreciation for the fact that just because this painting sold for X doesn't mean this other painting is going to also sell for X because of all sorts of factors involving condition and size and what series it's from and its provenance and all of those things, right? So the data alone won't tell us a um, a reliable story on which we can we can base a an investment strategy, for example. Without the data, we we don't have an investment strategy. But with the data alone, we don't have an investment strategy. Um, and and I, I I approach things in in, in a similar way um, in in my current uh, role, which is to say, you know, using data to the human brain is 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 prone to to misperception. We know this, right? We know that our our view of the world is is, is conditioned by various forms of cognitive bias and we need data to counter that and so i'm a big fan of capturing and analyzing data from from a wide range of sources i'm a big fan of using sharp data as in you know not just not just big data don't spend three days capturing all the data you can and then analyzing it where where can we find sharp data points that can that can allow us to test an idea quickly and know if it's good or bad so you know it's about different forms of data um and and and, and like i say it, it it provides a lens for us to for us to tackle um any particular problem it allows us to ask the right questions or it prompts us to ask the right questions um but i think it's really important when answering those questions to to deploy um creativity and to to be collaborative because I don't think the, in the numbers alone is where we're going to find the answers. That's how you interpret those, how you um, kind of use those, right? To, to, yep. uh, to It's about how you interpret them and it's about the tools that you use to interpret them. And I think collaboration is a big part of, you know, a big tool in that, in that, in that effort. Well, that's great. It's been a, a great conversation, Joe. Um, thanks for joining us. Um, hope you're uh, doing well over there in, in London. And um, yeah, all, all the best to you and your, your big ventures here. Thank you, John. Thanks for speaking with me. It's been a real pleasure. Um, and yeah, like you said at the beginning of the conversation, maybe one day we'll see each other in the flesh again. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so.
Thanks for checking out Six Degrees of Silvis. I'm the editor of the show, Evan Halter. If you'd like to learn more about John or the guests we have on the podcast, please visit johnsilvis.com. Thanks for listening.